Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. This is The Feed. The perfect storm. Here's the Oxford Dictionary definition. A particularly bad or critical state of affairs arising from a number of negative and unpredictable factors. Wow, kind of sounds like we're facing financially and economically here in Canada. Soaring interest rates, another huge hike this past Wednesday. Record inflation, a lack of affordability on almost all fronts, and the threat of a recession. Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Patty Lovett Reed to the rescue. Patty is Home Equity Bank's first ever chief financial commentator. She is also our guest right here on the feed. Patty Lovett Reed, what a pleasure. It's been far too long, and our time together years ago was fantastic. Thank you for that. And thank you for having me. And, you know, I remember the years that we worked together and we covered a lot of ground, and there were bumpy times back then. There are bumpy times now. Absolutely. And let's talk about that. How did we get where we are today, financially speaking? Well, I think it all stems from the pandemic, to be perfectly honest. And when the pandemic hit, the Bank of Canada really came to the rescue, along, many would argue, with government programs uh, to help households get through a really difficult situation. And But there was a knock-on effect. And what we saw happening was uh, interest rates were at rock bottom, and it was more or less telegraphed that they would be there for an extended period of time. You couple that with the fact that many who were in urban centers wanted to relocate to a more rural location. The housing market was blistering hot. The equity markets were blistering hot. I mean, sure, they pulled back initially in, but then they took off. And then what happened is uh, people, people had pent-up demand as things started to open up again. People were spending money. And we've been dealing with what was originally referred to as transitory inflation, meaning very temporary, to something that's been a lot stickier. And as a result, uh, and there are a number of factors that come into that play with inflation being high, uh, the Bank of Canada has been on a path of aggressively raising interest rates in an effort to beat down inflation. So let's first of all talk about inflation. Why is it so so high and, and so determined to remain high? I know that after the last Bank of Canada interest rate hike, and even the one before that, there was some moderating factors that went into play, but it's still really high. How did that happen? How did it become so high and so difficult to tame? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, extenuating circumstances. We know supply chain issues have been a challenge, the war in uh, between Ukraine and Russia, and, and that certainly has fed into things. Uh, there has certainly been pent-up demand. That also feeds into things. Uh, the housing market, uh, a great contributor to inflation. At the same time, very high gas prices food prices, and you kind of put it all together and it turns out to be the perfect financial storm for many Canadians. And so to tackle it um, on this aggressive stance from the Bank of Canada, it's all about taking what happened before where there was a lot of money 
in the economy to take some of that money out. And as rates go higher, people will be less inclined to borrow. And as a result of borrowing less, they won't be spending as much. And ultimately, uh, the belief and the hope, I guess, is that things will start to come down in terms of prices. Why didn't the Bank of Canada begin raising rates sooner than they did? I wish I had the answer to that. There are many economists on Bay Street that feel uh, the bank has to be very aggressive. Uh, You know, just look at over the last seven months, uh, rates have been aggressively going higher. Uh, I don't think that they're necessarily finished. We may see the bank rate go to four and a half, five percent. And again, had they started sooner, it might have been the slow and steady drip. But they might also argue that it was too premature. We did not have a clear view on where COVID was going. Did we have another wave right around the corner? And so these are these are serious issues. But, um, you know, when I look at central banks around the globe, I can tell you that the Bank of Canada is on an aggressive path relative to others. And maybe the thought here is we're going to get it down to that range that they're comfortable with. Are we headed towards a recession? You know, the economic indicators, and we'll get more reads on that, would suggest that we could see a mild recession. Uh, And unfortunately, there will be people who will lose their job through the process. Let's talk about then this perfect storm and and the threat of a recession possibly by the end of this year. And some, as you mentioned, are, are saying that it could be mild. Who is it going to affect the most? I think the lower income earners, the service workers, and I know we do have a shortage of uh, employees. I think there are about a million job vacancies. So if I had a silver lining here, that would be it. Uh, That people who want to find work will likely be able to find work. But I do think that those in the lower income bracket uh, will probably suffer the most. We've watched rents escalate. Uh, People are paying more when they go to the pump, when they go to the grocery store. And, you know, they may not have the financial wiggle room that someone who is a medium income earner or larger income earner that has that financial flexibility to get us through this period. Do we turn to our government's levels, municipal? You know, earlier this week it was the municipal election in Ontario. Uh, We talk about provincial, but we also look to the federal government. Do we need their help and what can they do? If you think about a place like Ontario, we've got low-wage policies that make it impossible for people to, earn, to keep up with inflation in terms of their wages. How do, who do we go to for help on that level, the government levels? Well, I do think I do think you're right. I do think going to your provincial government, the federal government will look at things on a more targeted basis. Uh, there are definitely pockets that are going to be hurt. Uh, you know, this isn't just the Bank of Canada in isolation. It's all forces coming together if we're going to get through this. But I also think in terms of households, what can you do? I can tell you that uh, just about everyone, Anne, that I have spoken to, has reassessed their spending habits. They've shut it down. Um, If you don't need to spend right now, don't. Now, that doesn't mean it applies to everyone because there are people out there who can afford to spend and small business owners and the economy continues to need them to spend. But I, I would suggest that now is not the time to take on more debt. It just isn't. So, um, you know, for anything, sit tight. 
People are becoming bargain hunters. Uh, if it's not on sale, it isn't for them. And and they're telling me this. I, I have um, an interesting following on Instagram, and it, and, it, and it's growing because there are those who have and those who have not. And even those who have, they will tell me regularly that just because they can doesn't mean they should. So everybody is shutting down. Cash is king right now, Anne. Um, what I mean by that is you're not taking big bets in the market. You're not taking big bets on purchases. Uh, people are using their reward points. Their loyalty programs are being, you know, um, utilized where they can. And it's all about putting some money in your pocket. You know, it's interesting. I, I looked at your Instagram, and your description is this, family, fitness, finances, and fun. I love that. And even though we're going through some really unsettled, uncharted waters when it comes to our finances and the economy, you put family first. Is there anything within the family dynamic that can help people get through these really troubled times? Thanks, thanks for saying that, Anne. Um, and I appreciate that because I do think family is obviously key. But this is a time for full disclosure with family. If you are struggling, if you need financial help, if um, you cannot make ends meet, this is where you reach out to your family and you talk to them. And you're honest with them. You know, it's one of the most difficult conversations you can ever have. We feel, and I'm talking collectively, and, and I sort of don't mean, I don't mean the royal we, I just mean we as Canadians feel like we've been punished enough having gone through the pandemic. Now we're facing this uncertainty economically and the, the, the possibility of a recession on top of everything else. What's the best way psychologically to get through this Oh, that's such a great, great question. I do think that when you're in relationships with people, um, your partner, it's about being transparent, mm -hmm. full disclosure. When you're in um, a relationship, it's, it's emotional, but there's also a financial element. Um, so often money still isn't talked about. And when it is discussed, families can sit down and they can say, we can't afford a vacation this year. That's what people are telling me. We're going to do a staycation. So let's work together. Let's find ways to stop ordering food in and we're going to cook as a family. Let's look at changing up uh, what we're doing in terms of activities. Uh, it does become a collective effort. But what I will also say is there are some silver linings out of this. And by, you know, talking about it in such a transparent way, this is a great life lesson. So often people will tell me, I wish my parents had talked to me about money. I wish they'd been more realistic about it. Um, you know, it's, it's almost distasteful right now to just go out and spend just because you can't. Yeah. And so I do think that it is a time where not only do you talk about it in a transparent way, here's the other thing I will tell you. Uh, watch out for elderly members of your family. If all of a sudden they are not coming to family get-togethers, they may feel that they can't afford to buy a gift for so-and-so's birthday. They may not be eating as well as they once did. Because of COVID, they pulled back on socialization, orientation, maybe even structure to their day. And there's a great opportunity to, to reach out and, and watch for the signs and offer up the help where it's needed.
That's brilliant. One quick question, and this is really a personal yeah. question. How do I, how do we, again, the we, how do we stop ourselves from dipping into our savings, our RRSPs, cashing those in? <laughs> well, these times are so tough. I mean, it's very tempting, but it's yes, probably it not the best idea. No, it's probably not. But the reality is, in, and, I, and I'm going to be realistic about it, there are many households who do not have an emergency fund that they could fall back on. And by the way, no one worries about losing their job. They don't care if their neighbor does, but they do when it hits their household. So every single person is going to be different. And, you know, there is still a feeling out there that you've got to keep up with the Joneses. Well, they're probably broke, and they may be struggling more than you know. And and so this is where, I guess, um, you distinguish between what is a need and what is a want for you. When I think about, for example, I'm not telling people don't go out and buy an expensive latte. If that's your once-a-week treat and you enjoy it, so be it. Uh, so you need to know what's going to excite you and what will stop you from spending. Uh, I also think it's a great I – can, I can give you a personal example here, Anne. Where going through the pandemic, we didn't know as a family how we would help out someone else. And we, and we didn't know what that looked like and what it meant until one day I was at a service provider that I go to and I realized just how, how they were struggling, like really struggling. And so in discussion with my husband, we said, how can we help them? And we did help them financially. But that's not the part I wanted to share. What I wanted to share was after we did it, and it wasn't just one time, and it's something that, that, you know, it's personal and it's private, but we shared it with our adult children. And when you talk about leaving a legacy or you talk about um, sharing data, I think when people do things, when you share it, you get a knock-on effect. And all four of our adult children all said, how can we help as well? It wasn't, wow, you did that and you're not getting it back. Can we have it too? Dot, 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 dot. No, that's not what it was about. People know when people are struggling. And, and I think it's something that can go a long way within a household by just small acts of kindness and getting everybody involved in it. Here, here. You know, when people ask me to describe you, Patty, because they know we've known one another for quite a while, I always say, <laughs> Oh my God, she's, Oh, no, she's gorgeous, but she's smart. With heart. That's how I always describe you. You are oh my incredible. Goodness. No, you're so great. <laughs> home Equity oh Bank. That is so lovely. I just want to. I just want to blow your horn if you heard the expression. Home Equity Bank's first ever chief financial commentator. How do you like your new job, by the way? I'm loving it. I, you know what? <laughs> I loved broadcasting. I did. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Three thirty in the morning, a wake up call. Actually, if I'm honest, I woke up at three o'clock without an alarm. And you know those hours. Yep. Ah, I did it for a decade. And you know, my family looked and said, Why? Why, Mom? So I retired with nothing to go to. And this is an important lesson for anybody listening. I have several little job offers that all came together and I was I don't know if I was really gonna retire. I thought I was, but anyway I haven't. They all came by Instagram. So Instagram isn't just about, you know, cute pictures, which I do like to post. I think they're cute anyway. Um, but it, it's also a great business opportunity. It's a great business tool. Every single opportunity came via that. You are fantastic. Thank you so much, by the way, for helping us navigate this 
perfect storm, which, you know, I wonder about those words, perfect and storm together, but that's a bit of an oxymoron, but you are wonderful. Thank you for joining us on the feed. What a treat. Hope we can do it again. Thanks, Patty. Anne and Patricia Levitt-Reed talked about the perfect storm. I'm Tina Cortez. Our next story is also about the economy. The Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters released its annual labour survey. With the findings, Dennis Darby, President and CEO of CME. Welcome to the feed, Dennis. Yes, good afternoon. How are you today? Good, thank you. Before we get to the survey, tell us about the manufacturing sector. How many people does it employ and and what are the sales figures for this industry? Well, thanks for asking. The Canadian uh, manufacturing industry and manufacturing export industry, it employs about 1.8 million people and that represents somewhere around 11% of our economy. Maybe more relevant, it's about three-quarters of all our exports to the U.S., and so CME, the Manufacturers Association, we represent that broad swath of manufacturers, everything from cosmetics to, uh, uh, to food, from oil refining you know, to automotive. All right, so let's go through the survey. The headline is all about the lack of workers, right? You got it. That's exactly the, the big issue that has persisted. It was there before the pandemic. We were a number of our members, probably about 60% of our members couldn't get the people they needed. It's been over 80% for the last two years through the pandemic and as we emerged. So it's a, it is a real uh, long-term issue for our sector. And are there shortages in a particular area of the industry? Well, it's in, in, when you think about the, the, the kind of job in manufacturing, it, it's mostly skilled production workers, so people with you know, with some technical training, uh, tradespeople, uh, and in general labor, and in production management. So it's really on the production side, the people that 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 produce the goods and materials that I uh, think that we use. It's more on the production side, less on the administration, you know, sales and marketing side, more on the actual production. Now, the survey also identified some of the impacts on business. What can you tell us about that aspect? Well, that was what was really interesting in the survey because what we've learned is that. These shortages of labor, these chronic shortages of labor that, have, that we've been undergoing, uh, about 85,000 know, vacant positions across Canada within the, our sector, really has two big effects that total about $13 billion a year. And what I mean is there are lost sales, about $7 billion a year in lost sales. Manufacturers say they just had to turn down uh, contracts, they had to turn down sales, or they paid penalties for late delivery to their supply chain. And the other side of it, about just, just around just over $5 billion, is on delayed or canceled capital projects. Companies just can't even expand production. We've talked to the company owners and they say, we just can't even think about putting more production capacity because we're not sure we can get people we need you know, to set it up and to run. So you talked about turning down sales and opportunities, but are some manufacturers actually considering perhaps leaving the country? Well, that's, you know, that's the, one of the tr- more troubling parts. About 15% of manufacturers, and that's pretty consistent over the last couple of years, uh, have said that they're under pressure, either themselves or by the supply chain, to move production uh, to another location, to a different jurisdiction. Um, even though these problems persist around the world, you know, there's still a pull in many cases. Hey, if you can't make it in Canada, can you make it somewhere else? And that's not good for our industry, and that's certainly that's not good for our, our balance of trade or economy. Are you able to maybe suggest some solutions? You know, where do the, the companies go from here? Well, so, you know, obviously in the short run, companies have been 
you know, as you have difficulty finding people with the right technical skills, you know, they, they, sometimes you increase you know, the offered compensation, but sometimes it just doesn't matter how much you offer because the people aren't there. And really, the, one of the issues, uh, if I could, is even pre-pandemic, we were had begun to see the effects of the retirement of the baby boob generation from industry. And so we relied on net immigration every year to try to make up, to refill the pipeline uh, of workers. The other side of it is we have been woefully you know, slow at, at, at helping getting young people to take up the trade, uh, technical trades or technical career uh, in school. So what happens is we haven't been filling the pipeline with either Canadians, you know, up, you know, especially women, girls, getting them involved in the manufacturing sector, nor have we been bringing in uh, enough immigrants. So we think we need, we've asked the government to do two things. You've got, to, you've got to unblock the pipeline of people into Canada. We need more economic immigrants because there are jobs here. Number two, we have to do more to help train and, and, and get more people into the, the skills. That's a provincial matter, but it also involves federal funding. So there's really those two areas. And the third, of course, is boy, we need to make sure we have incentives for automation because actually automation uh, is our friend in this case in terms of creating more capacity uh, for companies. Those solutions, though, that you mentioned are not short-term solutions, right? They're going to take some time to implement. What happens right now? Well, right, yeah, right now, I mean, the, the, shortest, the most short-term thing that governments can do, one is to, to is do what they can to get rid of that backlog of immigrants uh, through the immigration system. Temporary foreign workers, companies have said, you know, we need general labor as well, so maybe, you know, streamlining that temporary foreign worker program to get people uh, into Canada and working and ultimately, hopefully, converting them, you know, to, you know, to permanent residents. Those are the things you can do right away. But you're right, this is going to be a, a difficult problem for, uh, for probably for years to come. But uh, there's, no, there's no question, you can't, we can't wait any longer. I think the pandemic exacerbated the problem and we just need to get on with it. And uh, that's why we've been so public with our, with our surveys and, and with asking the government, this is, this is something that both provincial and federal governments need to work on because at the end of the day, uh, this is such an important sector to our economy. We just can't afford to watch those vacancies continue. If our listeners want more information about this survey or about the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters Association, where can they find it? Yeah, so go to our website. It's the easiest thing. It's uh, you know cme-mec.ca, uh, and you can go on the website and, and all of our, our studies and, and all of our uh, you know media releases are there. But also there's a great there's a contact link there as well if people are interested. Dennis Darby, President and CEO of CME, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much. When we come back, spectacular fun and safety too. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Halloween is on Monday, and the little ghosts and goblins are not the only ones in need of safety reminders. Here's Kevin Frankish with the CAA. It is the most spectacular night of the year. Lots and lots of fun. And when kids are running around and having fun, sometimes they forget the rules of the road. And that's where drivers come in. Teresa DeFillis joins me right now from the CAA. Uh, and, and Teresa, 
as a driver, it's our responsibility to always be in control. And that means a little extra for Halloween, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because, you know, we have a lot of people who are either rushing to get home or already hitting the streets with their little trick-or-treaters. Um, and we have to, as drivers, be that much more vigilant uh, and, and careful about the streets that we're navigating uh, on Halloween night. And even as we lead up to Halloween night, there's lots of people out and about for parties and, and um, events in, in communities at home, you know, home house, house parties and things like that. Uh, maybe a good time before we get to the trick-or-treating, maybe a good time to remind people to plan ahead. If they're planning on going to a Halloween party, to plan ahead. Ask yourself, how am I going to get home? This is so important. And, you know, the, the incidence of impaired uh, by alcohol or cannabis um, don't need to happen. Those collisions, those crashes are so avoidable with just a little bit of pre-planning and, and taking that care and caution to actually find another way home. Yeah, because there's so many times, and I've seen it, where someone says, oh, I'm fine to drive. That's not when you should be making the decision. You should be making the decision before you even go, before you have a drink. Um, you have no idea if you are impaired or not. I'm sorry, you can feel fine, but you have no real idea. Exactly. What, what you think you feel versus what is determined by uh, a police officer who pulls you over and either administers um, you know, a, a sobriety test or a blood alcohol uh, level test or can be two totally different things. And so the best thing to do is if you think that you want to engage in, in some recreation, um, just don't bring the car and find another way home. There are lots of options um, or offer to be the designated driver and don't partake in anything. And if you are having the party, it is your responsibility to make sure everybody who leaves and you know they're going to be driving, is not impaired. Correct. That is a homeowner's uh, responsibility when they're hosting a party. Okay, let's get to trick-or-treating. And uh, let's have some advice for parents on costume choices, and then we'll talk about drivers. Yes, for sure. I mean, it is really, uh, you know, a fun night for kids. They're excited. Um, and so, you know, we have advice both for drivers, but also for uh, caregivers and getting their trick-or-treaters ready, um, you know, absolutely for trick-or-treaters, think about things that make them visible, uh, whether that's glow sticks, uh, brightly colored costumes, um, increase the visibility so that motorists and those navigating those same residential streets are aware of the little ones that are taking to the road and help them be visible. If you're taking them out, think about what you're wearing yourself just as an added step to help drivers notice everything on the roads. I'm going to take that one step further for the adults, you know, because we stay on the street, right? We pulling the wagon or we stay away from the house, let the kids run up and down, but we're on the road sometimes. And so we need to be visible as well. Yes. I mean, you can get glow sticks at, at dollar stores. I mean, I, I use those with my kids. Uh, it's a common way to light them up. Um, we have reflector tags that we give out through our CA stores um, that are great little things to put on shoelaces or somewhere on their body that will help reflect the light. And as parents, same thing. Like, you know, I see parents sometimes get, you can get reflective vests at dollar stores as well, just to be extra safe, to sort of highlight to motorists uh, that there are, you know, little ones around and, and they're so excited. They're not always being as diligent as, as they should be when sort of wanting to dart to the next house. If they see a friend or see where lots of Halloween candy has been given out, uh, it can be unpredictable for, for drivers. 
and drivers really need to take the precautions to, to be managing their awareness, their alertness, so that they control what happens and that they don't cause any injuries. Let's talk more about drivers and how they should be acting, especially in neighborhoods. Now, obviously, we want them to be safe on the highways and on, on major streets, but let's talk about neighborhoods right now. What should drivers know? So, you know, a lot of speeds in many communities have been reduced, and they've been reduced to protect what is called in transportation terms, vulnerable road users. So this is pedestrians, cyclists, those with mobility needs uh, who are getting around in scooter on scooters. Um, you know, really paying attention to those speed limits is really important. It's starting to get darker. So turn on your headlights earlier, half hour before sunset, so that you've got the most visibility into what's happening on the road in front of you. So slow yourself down and really pay attention. You know, avoid any distractions. Don't be fiddling with your radio. Put your phone away. If you're using it for, for navigation, maybe use the voice prompt so that you're not looking at a screen um, and in order to help you really stay focused on the road. And you're in a neighborhood, usually in neighborhoods for a very short period of time. So you know what? Just Put your hands at the, the 10 and 2 or the 9.30 and 2.30 position. 9 and 3. You know, and, 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 and go, go um, you know, go that extra mile, literally, of being a good defensive driver, aware, uh, slowing down. Now, I know on highways, 100 kilometer an hour speed limit, we decide, oh, 120 is not bad. Well, a 50, 40, or 30 kilometer an hour speed limit, you know, we should be following that, in fact, not going slower than that speed limit, not faster. Right. There is a whole ton of data out there that says that a crash that happens at, you know, 30 kilometers versus 40 or 50 kilometers can make all the difference between life or death. And that is why you're seeing speed limits dropped to, you know, 30 kilometers an hour on residential streets. It is really about trying to um, first of all, hopefully avoid any of that. But if something should happen, that the, the, the type of the, or the severity of injury is greatly reduced when you are following the speed limits and, and going and driving that 30 kilometers or 40 kilometers. All right. So drive carefully on Halloween. Uh, the CAA stores have uh, some advice for you. They have some information and they have some uh, reflective uh, items as well. So check that out. Before we go, Teresa, I interrupted you. And I think this is interesting and this is important. Um, years and years and years ago, we always had to have our hands at the 10 and 2 position as though it was a clock because that's that is in control of your vehicle, not just with one finger or driving from the top, but with the advent of airbags that change from 10 and 2 because those airbags pop out if you get hit even at a slow speed they come out at 200 kilometers an hour and if your hands in front of it there are many cases of people dislocating bones because of it so what now is the rule for positioning of your hands on the steering wheel the positioning of your hand should be at nine o'clock and three o'clock if, if you're thinking about your your steering wheel as a clock nine and three will keep them sort of at the sides versus a 10 and two and, and as you mentioned, it has to do with airbags. Um, you know, they do come out fast. They, they, they're known they could take some skin off. Part of it is, is that it, it actually blows up. And so your hands come out and there have been incidents of people hitting themselves in the head as well. So this is to sort of keep your arms from, from going up towards your head and help actually causing them to go out to your sides. Oh, and I also want to bring up airbags 
in the passenger side and uh, kids or even even people who are, well, let's say, height challenged. Uh, we got to be careful about who's sitting in the front seat and the front passenger seat. I agree. And, you know, kids um, create sometimes pressure for their parents. Uh, you know, I know I had it with my kids and and doing what I do, I, I resisted because they, you know, they easily saw uh, people who were younger than them sitting in the front seat. They think it's kind of a rite of passage. Um, you know, the recommended standard, depending on the size of your child, uh, is to keep them in the back seat, even out of a car seat, up until about the age of 12. Uh, there are some kids, again, who are taller and whatnot, but they're younger, their bones are still developing. Um, not all of the children are the same size. And, and those airbags come out really fast. Um, yeah. and, and we don't want to see those injuries happen uh, to children that could be avoided. And keeping your kids in the backseat as long as possible is one of those things that you can do uh, as a caregiver, as a parent, when you're driving your, your children around. All right. Give the website. Uh, www.casco.com. So C-A-A-S-C-O dot com. Uh, and you can go to pedestrian safety, road safety. We've got tons of information uh, to your listeners uh, that uh, will help them at any given time of the year and on many different transportation things. All right. Thank you so much for this and uh, happy Halloween to you, Teresa. My, my pleasure and happy Halloween to you too. Safe trick-or-treating. After the break, the 85-year-old university grad from Markham. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Convocation is always pretty special, but for this particular graduate, it is a family affair. Kevin Frankish with that story. Well, we were pretty impressed in 2018 when her sister graduated at the age of 79. Well, Hortense Anglin just graduated this past Thursday from York University with a BA in Religious Studies. And Hortense is 85 and joins me right now. First of all, congratulations, Hortense, on graduating with the BA. Thank you so much. Appreciated. It was, um, it of course is, is a story that makes news because of your age. But, but do you really see your age as being anything at play here? Just the numbers. Only the numbers. I have sort of never shied away from doing something that the young people do <laughs> and they say, oh, grandma won't or can't do that particularly when it comes to education, I seize every opportunity to learn something new, something other than what you see or even what you read, because that's what the professors are there for, to encourage you to look outside the box. They what? don't just want you to write an essay and you do a paraphrase of what you have read. No, they want your reflections on what you have read. What do you think of what this essayist has written? And it could be somebody from traditionally years beyond your years. And you have this in writing. You have that person's perspective. And now my work is to my reflections 
on this person's perspective on this subject, whatever the subject may be. My guess is, is that your life experience is probably added to the class and to the lectures. Oh, very, oh, no doubt about it. Um, the relig your own religious tradition, the religious traditions of the other students who, I must give thanks to York, are many and varied. And that is what makes the course interesting because the students' lived experiences create meaningful discussion. Oh, it went from any religion that you can think of. There was somebody in that class that had experience then, and that gave the discussions life, particularly when we had to do it on Zoom. <laughs> How did the other students treat you? Oh, wonderful. Oh, each time I get, a, even though I'm getting a call. In fact, one of the other graduates, and I think he was walking ahead of me, he too did religious studies. And he said, you really kept us hopping <laughs> in, the, in the discussion because you always had something to say. And every time you opened your mouth, everybody almost stood to attention. And I thought, holy moly, did I take over the class? No, I didn't. But yes, your lived experience had a lot to do to elevate the classroom and the students, particularly, as I said, when it was being done on Zoom. Tell me about your sister as well. Now, she graduated in 2018, and yes, she was 79. She graduated in Gender and Women's Studies. What, what is with the sisters here going, going to university in, in their golden years? I, I know. We, for me, I had to find something to do when my husband died. I had to, after looking after him and moving from hospital to hospital, doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist, I now had days with nothing to do. Nothing to do. And it wasn't sitting well with me at all. So I said to my sister said to me, well, then, what are you going to do? I said, I guess I'll go to the library and read, get books. And she said to me, okay, why don't you come to York and read? And that's what I did. <laughs> so what would you suggest then to anybody out there who's retired and it may be facing a similar uh, situation where they're, they're, they have nothing to do? Yeah. What would call, you suggest? Call York University. They have classes in every description that you can think of. And if you go on their website, you will see things in which you are interested. And maybe all you have is a superficial knowledge of this subject. You enroll in it and you will be given the opportunity to delve into it. And then you say to yourself, oh, I never did look at it that way. Because you have your own personal approach and attitude to these subjects. And all of a sudden, somebody is saying, no, it wasn't quite like that. Let's look at the background 
background. For instance, you look at the background even in Christianity. You look at the background in traditional as well as non-traditional religious subjects. And you get a different view. It's a view that takes in history of the religion, sociology of the religion. How did it relate to its peoples? Philosophy of the religion. Why do I do this? Why does that religion do this? The people who are involved, why do they do this? And you get answers there. And you get different perspectives. Looking at the religious activity through the specific lenses of history, literature, sociology, etc. That makes it interesting. What's next? What are you going to do next? Oh, no. <laughs> the last course I did to satisfy the number of critics that I needed was called Anthropology today, um, making sense of a, of a changing world, anthropology today. And it was the one anthropological subject that I did. And I thought, this is interesting. I am going to have to do something in anthropology. Mm. And I said to anthropology, and I said to the president of York who was talking to me, Rhonda, and she said, why would you want to go and do another bachelor's? Why don't you do graduate studies? And lo and behold, I get an email from the director of graduate studies in <laughs> anthropology. She's saying, um, are you interested? And I said, well, it's one of my musings and I must find something else to do. So let's begin. So maybe I will take that up. I think I will, because once again, I'm at a loose end with nothing really to do. I could do a master's in religious studies, but I want to learn something else. Very varied. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. Congratulations. Thank you so much. All right, Hortense. And thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, I, ret I return that compliment. Hortense Anglin, 85 years old, a graduate now from York University with a BA in Religious Studies, and she ain't done yet. <laughs> uh, yes, that's true. Next, the Black Girls Hockey Club Fall Scholarship winners, Jim Lang, with the details. One of the great things that has happened to hockey in North America in the last few years is a great organization called the Black Girl Hockey Club, and they have made amazing inroads into the BIPOC community and making hockey more exclusive. And when they use the term hockey's for everyone, it really is the, the focus of the Black Girl Hockey Club. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Taylor Green. Taylor, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. How are you? Uh, fantastic. I know the Black Girl Hockey Club is doing a Canadian launch on November the 12th in Toronto in partnership with the Canadian Tire Jumpstart Charity. That's big news. And also big news is the Fall 2022 Scholarship Award winners as the Black Girl Hockey Club celebrates the newest group of exceptional young players, making sure that these young women get a chance to play hockey. It really is uh, grown into something very special, Taylor, what you are doing in your organization. 
Yes, absolutely. Lots to look forward to this season. As you mentioned, we are launching Black Girl Hockey Club Canada, and we're going to do our formal launch in Toronto on Saturday, November 12th. Uh, all of our festivities will be at Scotiabank Pond. Um, so if any of your listeners are interested, uh, just be sure to follow Black Girl Hockey Club on social media um, and join us. Um, also, as you mentioned, uh, our scholarship program, which is one of our more sustained efforts, uh, we just recently awarded uh, over 15 young, amazing women with uh, hockey scholarships. And this season, we are proud to partner with the Calgary Flames and the Pittsburgh Penguins to help uh, supply some winners um, with some money for their families. And we also partnered with Bauer Hockey and their initiative for gender equity uh, to supply winners with $1,000 worth of equipment. So we're really proud to partner with all of these teams and continue such a great program. And Taylor, before we get to some of the, the lucky recipients of the scholarship, to find that kind of engagement with the Pittsburgh Penguins, with the Calgary Flames, with some of the best professional hockey teams in the world, just shows you how respected the Black Girl Hockey Club has become and and how recognized it is of what your organization is doing to help people. Absolutely. We're really proud to partner with all hockey teams, NHL, PHF, you name it. Um, we're proud that they see something in us and they value our grassroots, community-based programs. Um, so we're really proud of having these sustained relationships and ensuring that these relationships are authentic. It's not in-name only or only about the money, but it's really about fostering genuine connections uh, with these teams and with their communities. Uh, I just got back from Pittsburgh, actually, and had a great uh, conversation with the Pittsburgh Penguins Foundation. Uh, we have such a great relationship with the Maple Leafs and with MLSC, so we're really proud to continue in fostering these bonds to help these young players. Well, one of them is Taylor Floyd. This is a fascinating story based in Dallas, Texas. Uh, considers the rink to be her happy place, and who doesn't like to think that, and is hopefully on her path to becoming an Olympic gold medalist goaltender and an author about her experiences. Now, that's the kind of story that here's a young woman in Dallas, Texas, and her dream is not basketball or football. It's to be an Olympic-level goaltender. I, I think that's fantastic. Absolutely. And, you know, from one table to another, I was so happy that we were able to help her and her family. Um, Taylor is such a unique person and just such a wonderful, gregarious young player. Um, you know, she's a goalie, so she's kind of quirky, but in a, a great, refreshing way. And, you know, we had a great conversation with her mom, and she said that Al Montoya reached out to her and saw something in Taylor and just wanted to keep uh, her in the game and wanted to keep her going. So I'm really glad that Taylor has a lot of people in her corner um, in Dallas, not uh, necessarily a traditional hockey market, but, um, you know, that she has a lot of support coming her way. So we're really proud of her and all of our scholarship winners. And Taylor, I thought this was a fascinating recipient. Noah Diop, raised in Chicago, resides in France now, and now she's eligible to play for the French national team. That's that's a remarkable story as well. Absolutely. Speaking to Noah, she was just so composed. She has such a great plan for her career. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, as I do with all of our winners. It's one of the highlights 
of my involvement with Black Girl Hockey Club. And yeah, as you mentioned, Noah, she's, um, you know, really focused on her career. She's living full-time in France and really devoting her efforts to hockey right now. So we wish her all of the best in her endeavors, and we know that uh, it can be quite daunting being the only uh, player of color for a national team. So we're here to support Noah in whatever way that we can, and we wish her the best of luck in her pursuits for playing for France. Thrilled to be speaking to Taylor Green from the Black Girl Hockey Club, talking about their 2022 recipients of scholarships. And and I would think for Taylor, you and your staff to actually sift through all the worthy contenders and pick people to actually give the scholarships, it has to be a difficult challenge. It is. If I could, I would give you know all of our applicants as much money as possible. Um, but you know, being a nonprofit with limited funds, that's not always possible, and so. Um, I'm really fortunate to have a great fellow uh, scholarship committee to work with, and we are immensely proud of everyone who applies. And just to hear their story, I feel like I know them a little bit before I get the chance to meet them. But um, that's really the beauty of Black Girl Hockey Club, the fact that we are uh, – creating these wonderful friendships and bonds and really are, are we're in it for the long haul. We're here to support these young women um, and their families for as long as they want to have a career in hockey. So it's, it's a, it can be a hard process, but it's a deeply rewarding process. It's great meeting these families in person and it's great to see them have their own connections. I remember I was on a zoom call and two families in two different states, two different leagues, they noticed each other on the call because they had seen each other from across the rink. Um, You know, it's great to see that they have their own great relationships and that sometimes they'll wear uh, BGHC merch and people will ask them about it. And so they're kind of ambassadors for Black Girl Hockey Club as well. So it's been a really great, uh, authentic, organic relationship with all of our applicants. Um, Deeply proud of all of them. No, I, I mean, it's hard to pick one, but from what I'm reading from the bios, Taylor, this one really stands out to me. Ashley and Kira Donato from Detroit, nicknamed the Venus and Serena of hockey by their mom, they get a $2,500 uh, donation or scholarship, each of them, courtesy of an anonymous donor. Um, th- that is fascinating in itself, as well as the Donato sisters. Absolutely. They are such leaders, and I think... Their mother naming them or nicknaming them Venus and Serena was so apropos. You know, I loved how uh, composed they were. I loved how uh, just how in charge and how determined they are when it comes to their careers in hockey. So I really value their tenacity, and I think that they are uh, true uh people from Detroit at heart. So, yeah, we're really proud of them and um, really thankful for that anonymous donor who was able to help us um, give them some money. So really proud and really looking forward to continue working with them and their family. I think it's amazing. You can get more details on their Twitter feed, at Black Girl Hockey. Of course, Renee Hess is the the brains, the genius, the foundation of it all. And Taylor Green, uh, with you in charge as well, uh, I can see why the Black Girl Hockey Club has grown to such lengths and such sizes it has. And a lot of people looking forward to November the 12th, the Black Girl Hockey Club Canada launch. Uh, Taylor, thank you so much. And thank you, Black Girl Hockey Club, for making this sport a better place. We need this right now in hockey. And thank goodness you guys are doing the work you do. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much for your support. 
If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you very much for listening.